All right, so let's get started. Uh, Max, you want to go ahead and share a little bit about, about your backstory and where you're at now with your career? Yeah, so uh, Max Ochler, uh I'm now the GP and founder at GTM Fund, which is weird to say for me because for nine years, I would introduce myself as the CEO of Sales Hacker or the VP of Marketing at Outreach or both uh, for four of those nine years. So um, completely new identity feels felt felt a little weird for the first maybe two or three weeks, but gotten used to it now. Uh, obviously, really excited about um, you know the next chapter at the GTM Fund, but also the work we did at Sales Hacker and Outreach uh, for the previous nine years. So started my career at a company called Udemy, online education company. Uh, was the first sales hire there. I think like eighth or ninth employee. Uh, we were. A small office in uh, Soma back in like the kind of startup heyday, uh, 2011. Um, Uber was just launching, Dropbox, a couple of these other companies. It was uh, an exciting time. But anyway, I got my break in tech through Udemy and um, built some really hacky stuff on the sales side of their platform to add instructors. Uh, you know, we had a two-sided marketplace, so instructors teaching courses to students. My side was bringing on instructors. The growth side was bringing on the students to go take the, the courses that the instructors created. Um, did some hacky things. We had some virtual assistants in the Philippines that acted as our SDRs. We used early sales engagement technology like Tout App and a few other things. We used web scrapers like, um, what was it, Phantom uh, JS and Python and things like that to scrape websites. And we would scrape Amazon and a couple other things like directories of best-selling uh, software engineering books and then get those people to take courses. And people, uh, other founders and, and VCs would ask us how we were growing so fast. Our VCs and founders would point people in my direction. I started having these conversations. One thing led to another. Started a sales hacker meetup. We met monthly, shared all the hacky stuff we were doing in other companies, um, whether it was SaaS or marketplaces. And then uh, parlayed that into the first ever sales hacker conference. That became a full-fledged media company with conferences, webinars, a podcast, and our publication, saleshacker.com, and um, ran that for five years. Uh, we got to about 170,000 subscribers, doing a few million a year. We did a joint conference with Salesforce, sold the company to Outreach 2018, joined as VP of Marketing, um, ran marketing for a little under two years, and then uh, moved into various leadership roles around the business, was there for four years. Uh, from low eight figures to like mid nine figure revenue. Now that's still, still too recent to be able to talk about the numbers, um, especially given this, the, you know, the, right. uh, where they are in the, in the marketplace, but, uh, leave everybody to read between the lines on that. Yeah. And then I started the GTM fund, uh, which is a, a fund where about 250 of our LPs are VPC level sales, marketing, customer success leaders, um, over the years wrote three books. Uh, so Hacking Sales was my first book, 2015, kind of about the early stage startup sales process and what technology to leverage there. Career Hacking was my second book. Uh, so really focused on kind of folks in their 20s and 30s that are still trying to figure stuff out and like how to build exceptional careers uh, because, you know, that's what I think exceptional people want. They want to they wanna figure out how to break through the, the ceiling of just kind of like the mediocre. Um, so some of the things that I did to get to where I am today and some of the kind of hacks along the way, um, which has kind of always been my forte. Mm. Uh, hence the Twitter handle hack at max and, you know, all those other things that I do around hacks. 
And then the uh, third book was uh, sales engagement. We, we wrote the book on sales engagement. Uh, we created the category on sales engagement at Outreach. And uh, we had the sales engagement podcast, at salesengagement.com. So we did the whole the whole thing for our category creation strategy, including getting that book out. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's a lot. Love it. No, no, no. That's awesome. Okay. So a couple of things that that jump out to me about that. So the first was uh, kind of how you started Sales Hacker. It seemed like in the very beginning, it was almost like a like a casual meetup amongst friends, just kind of like hanging out, exchanging you know, some of the hacks that they were doing to grow their business. And then it turned into this full-fledged community, which then, like you said, got acquired by outreach and turned into category creation, all that good stuff. How different is that experience of starting Sales Hacker? How different is that from starting GTM fund? Would you say that GTM fund, it was more intentional? Like, yes, we're going to go out and build this thing. Uh, or did you also find that you were kind of falling into this motion a few years ago? And now this is just kind of that point in the uh, organization's growth. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I kind of fell into both businesses. So, you know, sales hacker, again, was like a meetup, then it was a conference, then it was a full-fledged media company. Uh, the opportunity was just too big to to turn down. It was fun. Um, it was kind of something for everyone. And while I was running Sales Hacker, uh, a couple things happened. One, I had a really good cash flow business, but not a high upside business. So it's not a SaaS company. I'm not going to get a 10 or 20x multiple on revenue when I sell the thing. So I wanted to diversify. So I started putting uh, money and time into companies, through investments and advisories. And uh, ended up being early in Outreach, early in Gong, early in Carbon Health, early in Bombora, a couple other companies that are in the you know, hundreds of millions of not billion dollar valuation. And uh, so that worked out really well for me, that diversification. And, um, you know, over the years, I started becoming friends with my speakers and my sponsors and my attendees who were all VPC level sales, marketing, customer success leaders. And they would voice to me the same thing. They'd say, hey, I want diversification also. Uh, you know, if you take two you know, the directors of sales at Salesforce in 2012. And one of them goes to take the VP of sales job at Zoom. And the other one goes to take the VP of sales job at, you know, Achievers or something like that. One comp one guy puts in four years and makes 25 million. The other guy or girl puts in four years and makes zero. Mm. So, you know, now you put all your eggs in one basket and it didn't materialize mm. and you've got no other eggs in other baskets you've got no way to diversify mm. so i think folks really want to find a way to invest and advise in early stage companies but that takes a lot of work and it also takes skill to size up like, i mean there's a reason why venture capitalists are venture capitalists like they've worked on how to size up those companies if you pick the wrong companies you just end up putting a bunch of time and money into something that's not going to materialize like that's not a, a great way to, to do things either so in 2020, we got access to Angelus Rolling Funds feature, which was fairly new at the time. We were one of the first ones uh, to get on there. And they took care of all the back office of running a fund. So all we had to do was raise money and deploy capital. So we had to find LPs and find deals to do. And our kind of hypothesis or like thesis for the whole thing was, I think if we go out and fill up our you know entire fund with LPs who are GTM leaders, then we kind of solve that piece for them. Like we give them access to early stage investments and advisories very quickly and easily. 
On the flip side, we can get into some really hot deals with tier one VCs because our check sizes will be small enough where we're strategic to them. And uh, we can actually positively affect the outcome by helping them with GTM because our collective knowledge and our you know benches of candidates that we can place to the company, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, again, fell into the business the same way. It just kind of materialized. It doesn't, doesn't mean I wasn't hustling on both of them, but it was just like, wow, okay, we got something here. First year, we thought we would raise maybe a million dollars and put into 10 companies. We ended up raising 6 million, 150 GTM leaders, did like 60 deals. Uh, this year was, uh, this year will end up probably around about like 14, 15 now. So we'll probably end up around 18. Uh, and then we did another three in SPVs. So I don't know, that's like 25 to $28 million we raised over two years that we've deployed into companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just uh, received word from AngelList that we're in the 98th percentile of all their funds, 397 funds. And uh, I think only like two, in the, uh, well, us and one other in the top 10 have been around for less than two years. So they were doing pretty well so far. Yeah. Nice external validation. Uh, but again, like kind of fell into both businesses. Uh, they're 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 different and unique in their own ways. I think like Sales Hacker was something for everyone, and we went, you know, low ticket price, wide, lots of people, made money from sponsorships. This one, I'm doing no sponsors. We're high ticket price from very selective people, um, but similar formula, you know, otherwise, and then. Uh, for the fund, you know, we've kind of got three pillars of the fund. There's the fund, the community, and the media company. Uh, so we will we will start to do some some sales hacker stuff with the fund. You know, podcast is coming out soon, newsletters coming out soon. We're not going to do full fledged conferences or, or meetups or any of that kind of stuff, but we do do things for our LP base. Like we've got a, I'm sitting here. It's October fourth, so this weekend, uh, we've got ninety of our 250 LPs coming out to uh, Scottsdale for what we're calling a GTM retreat. And it's like an anti-conference. So mm. we're all kind of hang out, hike, play golf, hang by the pool, but all get time together and catch up. And, you know, you can go get content at Saster. You can go get yeah. content at Sales Hacker. You can go get content at Dreamforce. I don't need to sit here and put people on stages to talk about things like yeah, we'll some stuff around investing, but that's about it. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, you listen to Mike First Million. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of Camp MFM. They did a similar thing, but like for basketball, they just got a bunch of their friends and just like literally, I think it was like maybe like 30 or 40 dudes and they just played basketball, hung out for a couple of days, played Catan and, uh, and just hung out. So that sounds awesome. Helped, when, when Sam was starting the hustle, I was helping him out. I actually invested in their like uh, crowdsource round and we were exchanging messages uh, last week on our business models because he's really? doing, uh, he's doing a new paid community. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, called Hampton, I think. Hampton. Uh, big okay. community for, for entrepreneurs. Um, it's 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 interesting. I think he's going to do really well on it. The fact that they have the podcast that has the reach that it has means you can kind of spin up really any business and yeah. uh, be, be successful right <laughs> off the bat. Advantage. Now, yeah, yeah. that success scale, we'll see. I, I think, you know, he's a good entrepreneur, so it will. But um, the podcast is, you know, a huge way to, to launch things. For sure. Another thing that kind of jumped out to me about GTM fund and uh, as it relates to the beginning of sales hackers, almost like you were like the success story that led into it becoming a, a broader business. So with sales hacker, you know, you, you come up, you had come up with a bunch of different hacks to improve the business of you to me and uh, with GTM fund, 
you know, a couple of years prior to it being a real thing, you had diversified into a bunch of other uh, early stage SaaS companies and you saw the immediate benefits of doing that diversification. You knew what would happen if you didn't or the potential of what could happen if you didn't. And so that's the other thing that kind of jumped out to me, like that just that experience of the positive benefits of what the quote unquote product would be that you're trying to build. Yeah, definitely. So uh, when you first launched, G actually, this wasn't when you first launched GTM Fund. This was, I think, a couple of months ago when you said that you were going to go all in on it. You posted a blog on LinkedIn called Our Next Episode, the GTM Fund Platform. And I'm going to I'm gonna read it out really quick because there's one piece that really stuck out to me that I wanted to ask you about. So um, there's a blurb in it that says, if the fund size is tight enough, we can continue to run complementary to traditional VC firms instead of competitively. This gives mm -hmm. us better access to deals and diligence. We currently count 60 firms as friendlies whom we have relationships and do deals with. So my question is what do these like friendly relationships look like between you and these other VCs and how are they established initially? So let's say Sequoia does a $10 million series A. That means they'll take six to 7 million they'll put in on that round. Another two to three will go to pro rata. So previous investors that get to chew up their investment. Mm. I'll have a million set aside for strategics. Now, strategics could be CEOs of companies that have existed in that space before. Uh, that could be, you know, potential board members or things like that. Strategics could be uh, larger players in the space that want to have a little slice to, you know, stay on top of the company for potential M&A, like uh, acquisition down the road. Or strategics could be folks like us that bring 250 GTM leaders to the table and can actually support the companies early on on their on their go to market, uh, all things revenue. And so we're able to slide in on that strategic tranche for you know a check size, you know anywhere between 250 and 500k, without taking a slice of the lead investors' pie. Once you start taking a slice of lead investors' pie, then you start to be competitive to them because they can't get the amount that they want to purchase. So if we can stay complimentary, that means we can work with all of these tier one VC firms. They can have their slice. We'll have our slice. We'll support the companies and they can keep bringing us deals. Um, you know, we had a, a, a deal recently where we spoke to the founder like a week after their round closed. We just missed it. The founder loved our story so much um, and, you know, had had heard great references from other portfolio companies. He went back to the uh, VCs went back to the board. They reopened the round, let us in. Then he asked us for um, a menu, or uh, basically asked us for a CRO advisor. We sent him a menu of folks who are LPs in our fund. He picked, uh, he picked a you know head of North America sales for a very large company that was in their space. Mm -hmm. uh, we paired them together. Uh, they worked together for two to three months, and then that person took the CRO role at the company. And then right after that, the, uh, the VCs who reopened the round for us, uh, came back to us, both of them and said, uh, Hey, uh, here are some other deals we're working on right now. You know, what, <laughs> what else can we do together? Yeah. yeah. I mean like those types of things just strengthen those relationships. And when we say we have 60 friendlies, like that's, those are the types of companies or those are the types of types of VC firms we typically work with. The other beautiful thing about kind of the model here is that, you know, our diligence is mostly on the space and the founder, less on spreadsheets. Mm, okay. um, and either because we invest too early for there to be spreadsheets in existence, or 
um, you know, what diligence are we going to do that Sequoia hasn't done? Or, you know, that uh, Andreessen hasn't done on spreadsheets. Like that type of, they have friends and accountants that they work with. So if like we can rely on the leads diligence in those areas, then, you know, we don't need to lead deals because we already get that built into product basically. Got it. Yeah. When you do that diligence, what, if any, diligence is focused specifically on the competitive landscape of that, that, that company plays in? Is it like, do you look at like the product specifically and think, okay, are there other products that solve this specific need? Um, or is it more about like, okay, like we're going to take a specific niche within that existing uh, market or we're, there's a different kind of plan to get, you know, 10X, 50X bigger. How, how do you think about yeah. the entire landscape before you uh, deploy capital? So in general, we don't invest unless we see a clear path to a 10X, but a potential to do a lot more. So entry prices is... is you know, something we look at strongly because that's going to help us with that, that 10 X then separately, like the TAM of the space mm. in general and other successful companies that have come out of that space uh, is, you know, typically an indicator of that there are, are numerous public SaaS companies that have come up with um, I'd say a lot of fanfare, but then they end up either you know acquired by pe or ipoing and they stay in the low single digit billions are just kind of hanging out there for a very long time mm. and so like making other investments in those spaces gets hard because you got to look at those companies and say like well like was this just lack of execution did they not have the right people or was the tam just not big enough or was this too easy for you know other big companies to do um or is this like a low budget area in a business like there are certain areas that serve certain functions that like we won't touch because it just, it doesn't get budgeted mm. uh, or we won't touch uh, unless like they have a really deep vision and this is just a wedge for it. But even so it gets, it gets, it gets really hard. Um, like partnerships is one of those roles. Mm. Partnerships is like the first thing to go in any kind of recession or pullback they don't get a lot of budgets for technology. It gets really tough to do a lot of deals in that space. So um, I would rather invest in a good market than a good founder. Ideally, you get both. But like good markets will pull good, pull good founders. Uh, we try to get both. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is like the number one thing you could look for is what market is you know on fire right now. Was there something that happened in the world that made you know this market heat up i mean you look at like the last bill the infrastructure bill that was just passed had like you know 800 billion in it or something like that for climate change so is that going to go trickle down to a bunch of tech companies now mm. um when the iphone came out and everybody had one of those in their pocket that's why uber exists you mm. couldn't build that you couldn't build uber before that existed um, AI is a big thing now. You're seeing these companies that are leveraging GTP3 to help you write copy that are blowing up. I mean, the like, word on the street is like this company, Jasper, went from uh, zero to 40 million in ARR in like two years. It's the fast growing mm. company of all time at that, at that clip. So, or less, less than two years. So, yeah, you just have to look for those things that are really like, okay, the, the market momentum is going to pull this thing along. Um, it went, so, one thing that I want to double tap on yeah. for that is like, you know, 
you mentioned a couple of the companies that you invested in earlier, right? Drift being one, Gong being another, and even Outreach, obviously. And each of those are category creators. Gong with revenue intelligence, Drift with conversational marketing, Outreach with sales engagement. And so where does, how do you think about category creation as it relates to overall, you know, viewing the market that the company is playing within? Because it's a, it's a little, it's a little bit trickier when you're creating yeah. a category. Well, and I think that's when you switch to like, okay, is this going to be the win? Is this founder going to win? Mm-hmm. Is this founder going to run through walls? Um, you know, it just so happens that like my three best bets of all time were all immigrant founders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely something to that, I think. Um, but I do, I, I do think you got to find people who are just going to run through walls and get the job done and, you know, are going to go big and win their categories. It, it's tough to look at an early stage company and look at the competitive landscape and have any real semblance of like, oh, here's where they're going to fit into this thing. And here's how they're going to win it. I mean, it's really not, you're really betting on the founder's ability to to just find a way. Make it happen. Um, yeah. yeah. And you can look at their backgrounds and see how they piece into things. Uh, and that might help. You could look at the space overall and understand the strengths and the weaknesses of the other vendors. And, you know, for, for sales tech and revenue tech, like fortunately I have that visibility. Um, for other spaces, I don't. And I kind of have to rely on, um, you know, our LPs to help us with diligence on those things. Uh, that's the other great thing about our LP base is, you know, they've, they come from all different verticals, all different mm-hmm. industries. So we're able to rely on them for, you know, Hey, I'm looking at a FinTech company. Oh, cool. Let me ask the head of sales from square what they think about this thing. And so it, you know, it helps. Um, but I remember even the, even the investment in outreach, for example, like, let's go back to that for a second. So I think I got in a, like a $3 million valuation pre-seed 2000, early 2015, late 2014. In 2015, by the time Outreach announced their their $2 million seed round, uh, Sales Loft had raised $10 million. Inside Sales had raised $150 million. Gainsight had raised oh, $90 million. Million. We'll throw them in there just for a good yeah. measure. How it up had raised $20 something million. Uh, Yesware had raised $30 something million. Um, I know I'm leaving some companies out of this, but like point stands. As of today, most recent valuations, outreach at 4.4 billion, sales off at I think like 2.1 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside sales sold for scraps. Same yeah. thing out app. Yes, we're still kind of humming along, but I, I can't imagine that they're over like 30 or 50 million in ARR. It's just a guess, but I, I, I would, that would be astonishing to me if they were. Um, who else was in there? Gainsight sold to Vista for you know billion. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, around that. Um, so yeah, right. Yeah. Like, you could have looked at the competitive landscape and been like, oh, it's, it's gonna be great. Yeah, yeah. Or like, it's, how are they gonna how are they gonna beat all these? Yeah. Oh, and by the way, like sale, like eventually Salesforce and Microsoft are both gonna have their own products. They do yeah. now. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to look at that. And then every deck you look at is going to have some matrix in it where it's like the company you're talking to is in alone in the top rightest of the top rightest. The grid. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, little company <laughs> with nearly any product. Um, but you gotta believe and you gotta yeah. believe like that the founders can get it there and that they'll find, you know, they'll find the the sweet spot and they know the market. And I always look for that unfair advantage that like why you, why now type thing. So 
Um, you know, Uber was the great example of the why now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe we'll be talking to a person who's starting a company in the geospatial mapping space. And, uh, and you know, you'll be like, okay, well, like, wh- like, what's your unfair advantage? Like, why are you building this business? And if they were like, oh, I was a marketing manager at a ed tech company, it'd probably be like, okay, well, that's not yeah. really unfair advantage. Uh, but if they said, I just built this from scratch at Uber and I have three other engineers coming with me to start this thing so we could build it as an API for other companies, you'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah you've on. got a pretty good YU. That seems like a pretty good unfair advantage. Uh, let's rock. So, you know, like, you look for those things that are going to give these people an edge in these areas. And I'd say like that was, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at the sales engagement space, like the two winners clearly were sales loft and outreach. Um, I think, you know, the thing that made, uh, sales law formidable was like, they were a team of folks who used that product. They sold, they were sellers, mm-hmm. they like built the business from an, like that aspect of sales. Um, I think the thing that made Manny, uh, an outreach specials, Manny and, and, and Andrew Kinzer, the two founders, they were like product specialists. They, everybody, they onboard in the early days, they would have to go through video calls and like user interviews and that type of stuff. And they came at it from a different angle, but they, you know, kind of built this reputation as like product focused and product first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Manny was a product guy at Amazon and Microsoft before that. So, you know, if you look at the other founders in the space, I don't think anybody else really had those things that kind of stood out. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that sales loft uh, had kind of like that sales specific edge in the very beginning sounds like outreach had more of like they were leaning on like the product side that's yeah. really cool yeah the um zeb the founder and ceo of um of clickup he's a product guy as well yeah. he's still very deep into the product and um loves building and all that kind of stuff well that's really interesting find people who can lean on their their strengths too i mean if you look at i think uh you know gong did a great job on the marketing side of things like oh totally command a high seat price solely because of brand Mm-hmm. And Amit is a marketing guy. He's a phenomenal CMO, and they were able to lean on that, uh, you know, for a very long period of time. And um, you know, product's great. Like that, that area, that product suite, the the conversational intelligence piece had been commoditized, and they saw that coming. They were the first ones to switch it to revenue intelligence. Yeah. They, when they made the move to revenue intelligence and everybody else, including analysts, were still calling it conversational intelligence, it kind of was a head scratcher, I think, to a lot of people. It was like, whoa, like you finally got recognized. Right. Massive. The goal. It's like the and goal you, to get onto like the it. Gartner yeah. Bluster, and Bridge and all that. Yeah. But they saw it coming and they had the market ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was pretty brilliant, you know, of them. And you know, it's just, you got, you got to bet on the people. But I do think the markets in, the, in this sense, that a lot of these folks were playing in uh, sales, sales tech space. It was ripe for di- disruption. It hadn't had its cycle yet. Sa- the last sales technology that was built was Salesforce, basically, and LinkedIn Sales Navigator. But uh, up until 2015, there wasn't really a lot of funding going into sales because sales didn't really have their own budgets. You had mm-hmm. headcount, you had Salesforce, and that was it. And IT even was the one in like managing Salesforce. Right. And you had this cycle. Um, about five years earlier and like the like around 2010 where marketing had its heyday where you saw HubSpot, um, Marketo, Responsus, Eloqua, Pardot, 
you know, all those companies, um, exact target all have really outsized outcome for that time. Um, and marketing budgets were huge and all these sales tech companies that were coming out, they were, they were fighting for marketing budget, uh, especially like the pipeline development ones, the early days of sales engagement were all about fighting for marketing budgets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the sales engagement space is a really good example of why like betting on the first company in a new space isn't always the best. Um, you know, you, I, I do think that inside sales, yes, we're in Tad app spent a lot of their marketing dollars and everything building a space, but not necessarily the right product yet. And other competitors got to come in and see, all right, well, like this space exists. There's a bunch of money starting to go into it, but the people that are in it really kind of built what they thought the market wanted, but now the market's providing feedback mm. And it's almost too, like deep. too late for them to go pivot into like what they need to do. So it worked out really well for some of the late entrants. And that's kind of always how it is. Like Google wasn't the first search engine. There was yeah, That's, that's so interesting too, because you hear about all, all these, um, oh, it's like, you know, the first mover advantage kind of a thing. Like that's a very common perspective that I hear about as well. Um, but in a lot of cases, that's not true. Like a lot of really successful companies are able to observe the market after you know a category has been created or a movement has started and they're able to because they they're a little bit removed from it they can better identify what needs what needs the customers the users have and can better serve them they're in a better position because they're starting from scratch versus the other companies who are a bit more established and they would need to backstep a bit and then go back and yeah it's it's yeah. an interesting first first mover advantage is a tactic within a company not a strategy to start a company mm. it's like uh you know gong doing uh we're gonna do revenue intelligence like they moved first on that piece they were already up and running they moved into that category they saw, saw the market before other people but I think, you know, it's not necessarily an advantage if like you're the first company to market in a space necessarily, because by the time you get enough feedback, it's like, all right, well, we're too far along to rebuild this thing. It's easier for another person to come in and, and build it and execute stronger than we can. You see it everywhere. I mean, I, almost none of the biggest companies were the first ones in their space. Facebook was not the first social network. Right. You know, so. Yeah. All right, let's pivot a little bit to talk about community. Because I know that I, I think I would get slapped around if I didn't ask you a little bit about community or if I went too far into this podcast episode without talking too much about it. So there's a couple of questions I have. One thing is um, I, I frequently hear sales hacker and outreach being mentioned alongside other community acquisitions by larger companies. And so the other couple are like, you know, Hustle with HubSpot, yeah. um, Matterport with Zapier. And, uh, you know, that path of starting and selling a community is that still an opportunity that you think entrepreneurs have in 2022? Or do you think that that time has come and gone and now companies are seeing the value and are trying to build that in-house? It's huge. And it's just getting started. I mean, I'm not sure how high the upside is and it's really dependent on like what you want to do with your time and and where you want to get. But, you know, I was, I sold my company. I did mostly stock because I knew the value of outreach was going to go up so much. And like, you can do that. I think if you sell it to bigger companies, you're probably going to get cash. Um, but there's so much opportunity there. I mean, if you're like somebody in a niche and you can get that going, there's, I think building a community and a media company for every software company is like a crucial initiative now and going out and buying it could save you three or four years of time. 
Mm-hmm. And that's if you execute well, it's a no brainer. As long as you can get it, you know, you, you can figure out the valuation there. I've probably been on four or five calls now with like, um, with, uh, with either companies, funds, um, or uh, PE firms talking about potential acquisitions that they're looking to make and like how we did the integration and stuff like that. And I'm always happy to have that conversation. I did one for the hustle, uh, you know, with HubSpot and, and, a, and, a, and a, a fair amount of other folks doing looking to do the same thing. Uh, I think it's, it's a, it's a trend that's happening now that should happen a long time ago. I mean, mm. we are, we were able to capitalize a lot on the sales hacker acquisition with outreach without cannibalizing, uh, you know, sales hacker. And we were, we kind of over did it. I, I mean, sales hacker was my baby. I didn't want to ever make our subscribers feel like they were ending up on a, a lead list to buy software. So like it really had to be kind of like an organic thing. There was always a hard wall too. So, you know, we had a, I think we, we use like active campaign for sales hacker and we use Salesforce for outreach. So um, the, the leads that signed up for, you know, our newsletter or updates and things like that, or webinars for sales hacker, they didn't go over to outreach unless it was an outreach webinar. And then we treated them exactly. We treated other sponsors, but your other things that you're able to do with the community like getting them into the outreach funnel through events and things like that, that make a lot of like natural and organic sense. For those entrepreneurs that are considering starting their own community, what, what other tips do you have for them in order to start successfully? You mentioned the niche already, like you have a, a strong niche. Thick and niche. You, know, you got to have an understanding and like a, like a, uh, somewhat of a network already in that niche. Uh, you got to be able to, 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 find a way to put people on a pedestal that are in your community that provide a ton of value and, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's webinars or things like that, but, you know, make them the speakers. Uh, you got to have a long view. So you got to stick with it and you got to be consistent. So, you know, uh, you got to have people posting constantly. You got to pick a platform and, you know, make that experience a good one. You know, you could do free or paid communities, usually make your money through sponsorships either way. Uh, unless you do like a really high ticket community, but even then, like you can still get sponsors. Depends how you want to do that. Um, how much was like a you know when you would get sponsors? How 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 much uh, how involved would those sponsors be with the actual community members? Would it just be okay? We're gonna put you like your name and brand over on this channel, or would it mostly, or or would they have more specific FaceTime or webinars to try to pitch the community members? I feel like that's like when things go a little too far and that starts to maybe. We would, we would do sponsored webinars and a sponsored, uh, like a month of sponsoring the podcast. So we read you in the B-roll and then we would do, um, uh, let's see, sponsored content, stuff like that. But we had very strict rules at Sales Hacker because we didn't want to make it, pitchy and things like that. Right. Yeah. Our kind of rule of thumb was you can give a presentation. It can't be about your product. It has to be about something you can do with your product, but like that is a normal motion in like the sales world. And at the end, you can, you can talk about your product. So it's like, here's this really awesome thing that we're doing and here's how we're doing it. Oh, by the way, if you have no budget at all, you don't need to buy anything. You can still do this. Mm-hmm. However, if you do have budget, here's a way you could do it a thousand times easier. But again, if you don't, this is still going to be better or the like the gold standard for what you're currently doing. 
And if you do everything like that, then everybody gets value out of it. And like a lot of times I found that like marketing leaders almost like get in their own way or they get like, you know, too greedy and they, they don't really like understand that. But the best thing about that is if I'm listening to your webinar, I'm getting value of it. I don't have any budget now, but I have it two quarters from now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a ton of value out of this and I'm going to come back in two quarters and then, you know, we're going to talk and you'll get a deal done. But if you just hit me with the pitch and I need budget right now to get any value out of this, I'm out. And you're going to lose me from coming back in two quarters because I didn't stick around because I didn't have the budget now. So why am I going to listen to this? I don't know when I'm going to have the budget. So you got to kind of help them out, make them successful like that. And then, uh, you know, it's successful for your audience as well. Nice. All right. One last question, then we'll wrap up. Okay. So, and this is a, this is a selfish, selfish question because, uh, you know, I'm a present day caffeine addict and you've shared your background on, uh, you know, ditching caffeine completely a long time ago. I know that takes a lot of discipline. Um, and you know, I also saw, you know, your LinkedIn experiences that you founded a company called Sutra, mm -hmm. which is, uh, uh, made from superfoods and natural ingredients, anti-caffeine again, and that seems like it's taking again discipline plus fun, adding like an element of fun, something that you're really interested into into your business. And so, how important would you say that that is? You know, discipline and and having fun. Um, with how, how important are those things to you when it comes to your career? And how important do you think that is to to other entrepreneurs and their success? Yeah, I mean, like uh, if you're gonna go big on something you're going to be in it for a long time and you're going to work a lot on it. So you might as well have fun doing it. It's got to be, it's not always going to be fun. There's no such thing as that. There's going to be stress around, uh, you know, OPEX and finance and, you know, all that kind of stuff and disgruntled employee that, you know, thinks they can make more money somewhere else, even though they just started working six months ago and you're paying them double than they were making in the previous role, but they've been right. doing work and now all of a sudden they're getting surfaced, you know, and you know, it's a, you're always going to have headaches and things that come up. Like you got to generally like the space. Like I love making money by helping people make more money. That, that's a blast. And the things that they can do with that and selling to salespeople is a lot of fun also. Cause it's, it's a lively bunch. Like it's not, I don't know. I mean, it, selling to CISOs and CIOs for me, I think would be a lot more like a lot sleepier going to cybersecurity yeah. conferences and stuff like that. And then like having to learn about a whole space that, um, you know, at a very deep level that like, I already don't know about now it's like extra work to do. It's like, I already know about this. Like it's, it's psychology, it's human behavior. It's fun. Like I like, you know, meeting and hanging out with people and salespeople like that they're extroverts. Like, so that was, that was always fun for me. Um, media company, you know, it was, it was a good time. There was a lot of stress, uh, you know, the event days and right up to the events were stressful. Um, but other than that, like, it, it, you know, at least it was fun. It was good cash flowing business. I got to work with a lot of different people. I think on, on the, um, you know, on the sutra thing that we did, I got to do that with my, my wife. Uh, um, oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. We, we started that. We, we had, we went from nothing to shipping product in three months. And that was like a fun challenge to solve. It was like, oh, wow, here's a CPG company. Like, was that your first like physical kind of product that you worked with and tried to sell? Yeah. Nice. yeah. And like we, like we, there's an article on the hustle that, that details all of it. But like we, um, I quit caffeine in 2012 
we started working on Sutra in, uh, I think, 2017 or 2018. I think it was 2017. And uh, she was quitting caffeine at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to find, like, ca- caffeine alternatives that weren't tea. Because, like, tea is not really, like, a robust beverage like a coffee is. It's just, yeah. you know. Um, just I totally just- get it. I, just, I did a detox last month. And uh, <laughs> I, like, I just did not want to drink tea. I was like, I'll just drink water. Like, it's just yeah. it's not a good substitute. But you can, but like there was, there's like lots of like chais out there now, especially like turmeric chai. And so that's what we were trying to figure out. It was like, can we make like a turmeric chai latte using like almond milk and turmeric and things like that? And then like, oh, what if we could package this and sell it? She was a um, like growth marketer. So I was like, okay, well, we have built in somebody who can go and sell this and figure out how to run the Instagram programs and things like that to get this out there. It's a beautiful product that could sell on Instagram, it's healthy. And, you know, so it stands for like our kind of values and things like that as a, you know, um, as people. And so we went out and, and did it and, you know, we, it was hard. You're, you're competing with a lot of other companies through Instagram and things like that. Uh, you know, I think like we could have probably figured it out if we had given it more time and my wife got pregnant and she was like, I'm built to be a mom. I want to be a mom. I want to be present with my kids. I don't want to run a business while I do this. We can yeah. come back at a later date. I think if it was like doing one of these, we probably would have figured it out, but it was kind of doing one of like these. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, like come back to this later. I had right. sales backer outreach, all that kind of stuff. So um, it was, it was a fun experience. We actually like got introduced to the shark tank folks and got really getting on shark tank. Yeah. Like we were talking to producers uh, we sent them our video. They sent it back for edit. They like don't send it back ever for edits or anything like that. They were like, do this and then do this. Uh, so yeah, we were we were kind of close there. But um, oh, that's so cool. Everything, everything happens for a reason. We ended up getting pregnant like six months later. So yeah, I think we probably felt more of a responsibility to to keep doing it if we had been on Shark Tank. And um, you know, now we got two kids, and my wife loves her kind of stay at home mom life. She's homeschooling my oldest and is really enjoying it. So yeah, it, it all worked out for a reason. Nice. Love it. Max, this was awesome. I, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And uh, there are a lot of great insights for a lot of different folks, I think, from from this conversation. So really appreciate you joining. Is there a, what where are some places that folks can follow you and the latest on GTM fund? Yeah, LinkedIn is, is where I post the most. Uh, follow GTM Fund on LinkedIn as well uh, to check out the portfolio companies we're working with and uh, LPs we're working with and podcasts and all the kind of stuff we've got coming out in the next few weeks here if you're listening to this in October of 2022. Awesome. Max, thanks again for joining. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.